It goes without saying that we are unable to predict the future. But what if you could? How would you act differently? If you knew for certain many of the important matters that would take place in the world and in your own personal sphere over the next, say, five years, how would that change the way that you act? If you knew that particular things were definitely coming, natural disasters, new people entering your life, new relationships, certain financial situations, if you knew all of that was coming, what would you do? Well, it may be that we might understand those things and act properly, but it's not a guarantee. And so it is that when we come to the Bible and we come to things that are spoken of in the future, we don't always necessarily prepare in the way we ought to either. And yet, we need to understand what's coming in the future because the Bible tells us what's going to happen and expects that we will make the connections to live our life and, yes, to minister on Christ's behalf in light of those things. The Bible doesn't just tell us things that are statistically likely to happen, as we often look for when we're planning for our own futures. It tells us things that will happen. And those are the things that guide and direct our ministry and the way that we do things. And this is evident here from what Paul says to Timothy in his own life. Paul has come basically to the end of his earthly course. He has lived a life uh, that from the time of his conversion onward has been fully dedicated to serving Jesus Christ. And it has been driven by the kinds of things that he describes here. He speaks of doing something in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. He expects that there will be a judgment to come and that Jesus is going to appear and bring his kingdom. And when he does, he will have wanted to do what he instructs Timothy to do here. Namely, to minister faithfully according to what God has told him to do, not what everyone else around wants. To preach the word that God has actually revealed, verse 2, preach the word, and not to do the kinds of things that are going to make us popular in this present life or the things which are going to make our life easy. There will be people who don't want sound doctrine. So in Timothy's case and his ministry, what that meant was you got to stand firm and do what God says anyway. You can't just say, well, I'm going to go along with what people want because after all, that's what the people want. What he says is you have to do what God says because it's not their judgment and their influence that matters. What matters is that Christ is going to pass judgment on all of us one day when he comes. So this should dictate what we do. And it should make us willing, as verse 5 says, to endure hardship, to go through difficulties even, if that's what it takes. And the reason we're able to do this is because we have this future hope that's coming. Paul can say at the end of his life in verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. For all the things the Apostle Paul was able to enjoy in life, there was also a sense in which he was getting through it in view and in hope of something better. Paul understood that the sufferings of this life, in particular sufferings on behalf of Christ, were something that was only going to be temporary and that it was the coming reward 
given to him at the return of Christ, which would make it all worth it. And so he says in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And of course, it's a wonderful promise, isn't it? That it's not only to Paul, but to who? All who have loved his appearing. What a blessing that we can also share in this. And so while we may not have the exact same ministry as the Apostle Paul or the exact same ministry as Timothy, the principle is laid down that there is a way in which as those who are commanded to serve in the church and on behalf of Christ to one another and in the world, that we are supposed to do this in a certain way in light of the coming reward that God gives at the coming of Jesus Christ. And these are the kinds of things that we want to look at. And so ministry is something that does take place in the present time. It does matter in the present time, but it can't simply be about the present. It can't just simply be about the here and now. Too much ministry takes place that is strictly focused on helping people to make their lives better or making circumstances better here and now. And it it isn't framed by what that means for the future that God has promised. But if we're going to do faithful ministry... What we need to do is to keep in mind what God has said is coming in the future. And not only the promises about what he will do, but also the incentives that he gives that are distinctly about what Jesus is going to do when he returns. And not just about what we can get in this life. So we need to correct this tendency to look only to the here and now. And we need to maintain a future focus in our perspective on ministry because this is what we're going to find this morning, ministry that is faithful to the scriptures is simply ministry that is done in light of God's promises about the future. Ministry that is faithful to the scriptures will be ministry that's done in light of God's promises about the future. And so we want to do ministry in the church with a future focus. And I want to uh, look at two particular things this morning. One will be the substance of those promises, the biblical promises about the future. And then I want to look at how this shapes our ministry. What is this actually going to do? How will the future promises of God, how should they shape the ministry that we do here and now? So I want to just walk through, first of all, a few biblical promises about the future. Some key things that God has said just to sort of lay the groundwork and the foundation to make sure we're all on the same page about these basic things. And then we'll talk about some of the direct ramifications that should change the way that we do ministry in light of those things. First of all, what is the biblical promise that we start with? Jesus Christ will return. Jesus Christ will return. He is coming again And this will change everything. There are not many things in the New Testament more clearly reiterated and repeatedly reiterated than the fact that Jesus is coming back. Acts 1.11, when Jesus had departed into heaven, he had been taken up into the sky and the clouds sort of hid him from view from that point on. Um, The two men appeared in white to the apostles. And they also said, Acts 1.11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He is said of him in Revelation chapter 1, behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him 
so it is to be. Amen. This is what we're told. Everyone will see him. Not just a select few. This is not going to be a mysterious secret kind of thing. But he will become visible. He will come again to the earth just as he did. Just as he was here previously. Except this time he will come in glory with the holy angels. With the clouds of heaven. And everyone will see him. The Bible speaks of this. Sometimes in terms of the revealing or the appearing of Jesus Christ. Not because he is invisible, hidden somewhere here on earth now, but because he is going to become seen. And so we find in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Jesus is coming again. He will be revealed and he will appear in this world and he will rule and reign. Well, more on that last part in a moment, but there is another truth to look at. Jesus Christ will return. Secondly, the dead will be raised. The dead will be raised. This is the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead. John 5, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus, a few verses earlier, identifies those who did the good deeds as one and the same with believers. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. But there's going to be a resurrection of all men. People will be raised. Every person who has lived will be raised. And unbelievers will be passed into judgment. Believers will find and be given eternal life. This is not necessarily the way that people often view the afterlife. They view that what's to come as some sort of ethereal, mystical, uh, heavenly kind of world where we're on the clouds playing harps and uh, we look just like angels and this just this sort of um, uh, magical kind of place that's not very real or tangible. This is just not the way the Bible describes it. It describes a resurrection of the dead to live in a real world, a physical place. So we ought to look forward to this as what is coming. Jesus was not the only one to be raised from the dead. He was just the first among many to come. And so Colossians 1.18 says that he is also head of the body of the church and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 says Christ is the firstfruits of the resurrection. And when the Apostle Paul writes that chapter... The entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, all 58 verses, is about that subject. The future resurrection of the dead, and in particular, for believers. So this is the hope that's coming. And he says there in that chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And so believers will at that time be glorified, they'll be transformed, no longer able to sin, no longer able to die, and they will have the eternal life that Jesus promised. The resurrection is a vital part of this, and this truth is coming. The dead will be raised, and believers in particular will enter into eternal life. 
after the judgment. Well, that, is, that leads us to the third point here, which is that every person will be judged. Every person will be judged. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 tells us this. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Justice will be given, vindication of the righteous and punishment of the wicked. We read earlier in Psalm 35, you have David pleading that God might make a distinction in the way that he acts toward people who are for God and those who are against him. And part of the way that people manifest that they're against God is by attacking God's people and in particular God's official servant, the king of Israel. David, who was trying to do what was right in the sight of God. This is one of the most restated truths in all of Scripture, that there is a judgment coming. Look with me, if you will, in Revelation chapter 20. A very well-known text, but one that we would do well to look at again. Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the dead, death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This coming judgment is why we preach the gospel, because that is the only way to be saved from it. The only way that our sins will not be counted against us in that future judgment is if Christ has borne the penalty for us and if we have received credit as righteous and forgiven in the sight of God. This is why we preach Christ, because people need to escape this judgment and instead to enter into eternal life by God's grace. And God's mercy. First Peter 4 verses 4 and 5 says of the unbelieving world around us. In all this they're surprised that you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. They speak evil of you because you won't do the things that they do. Peter says but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So. People will be judged whether they are believers or unbelievers and divided accordingly. Um, not only that, though, but believers will be judged and rewarded according to their deeds. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul speaks of the motivation for what he was doing. And he says in verses 9 and 10 of that chapter... Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It was this knowledge of the coming judgment that drove Paul not to say, well, I'm already in Christ. I'm not going to hell. So what else do I have to worry about? He didn't say that. Instead, he said that we are going to be recompensed or rewarded for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. So guess what I'm going to do? I want to show up having pleased God. 
I want to show up by the grace of Christ, having done the things that God delights in. There'll be more on this in a few moments when we talk about how this all impacts the way we do ministry. But the big point is, everyone will be judged. So Christ will return, the dead will be raised, every person will be judged. Now at that time, something else will take place. Believers will be glorified and presented to Christ. Believers will be glorified and presented to Christ. If you're nearby, you can look in Colossians chapter 1 and in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, You'll notice a couple of similar ideas going on, which is not surprising because not only was it written by the Apostle Paul, but also uh, these books were written and sent at the same time to these nearby churches. Colossians 1, uh, verse 21 and 22, he says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. But notice he doesn't stop there. Reconciliation is how we're able to come to God. It's how our sins are forgiven. It's how we go from being at enmity with God or enemies of God to being at peace with God. And so he's done this through the cross. This is what Jesus' death did for us. And yet there is more going on. He has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Why? In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This is why God saves people, not only so that their sins will be forgiven and so that they don't have to go to hell, but also because he wants those people to be prepared and given to Jesus as pure servants of his, as people who are made like Christ, so that he might be, as scripture says elsewhere, the firstborn among many brethren. The idea is that believers would be conformed to Jesus Christ and be made in this way holy and blameless and beyond reproach. We find a similar statement here in a passage that is directly about marriage, but as an aside, and really to show what marriage is all about, Paul says in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, I uh, betrothed you to Christ as a pure virgin that I might present you to him, spotless. This is what Paul understood the purpose of ministry in large part to be. When a person has become a Christian, that's not the end. That's just the beginning. Now, it's an incredibly significant point because from that point on, a believer is no longer condemned, no longer under God's judgment. And so in one sense, there is more that changes at that moment than ever changes at any point in the future. And yet the work is not over. And part of the reason why we're left in this world is to be transformed into the image of Christ so that when we meet him, we are made as much like him as possible. This is what Paul saw as his goal in ministry. So he says that uh, he works toward this presentation of 
Christians to Christ. And with this is the idea of future glory that's coming, glorification. Um, There are a few passages where he talks about what motivates him and and, uh, why he does what he does and what's in view coming in the future. Just listen to these when he speaks about the glory of the saints. In 2 Timothy 2.10, he says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. He understood that this was the end goal of laboring and ministry and even suffering because he wanted believers to come to this place of being glorified in the presence of Christ. Ephesians 3.13, he says, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. Why? For they are your glory. As Paul suffered doing faithful ministry to other people, he understood that the outworking of what that ministry would produce in other people would be this glory that would come and would one day be revealed. Colossians 1.27, he refers to Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is preached among you. Christ dwells in you, both individually and as the church corporately. And this is the hope that we have of the future. We have received He says elsewhere, the spirit as a down payment, as an earnest, as a pledge of our inheritance. And part of that inheritance is the glorification that is promised. Again, this time when believers will be made new, no longer perishable, no longer corruptible, no longer able to sin. And so much of ministry is about moving us toward that end that God has ordained for us. He eagerly desires for us to get there, one more text on this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, uh, it was for this he called you through our gospel, verse 14, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, this is the destiny that God has ordained for believers. And Paul saw his ministry as moving toward that particular end. And one day what will happen is we will show up at the marriage supper of the Lamb and Revelation 19.8 says it was given to her, the bride of Christ, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. There is a sense in which we stand before God with no righteousness of our own, but we are also clothed in the splendor and the glory of what Christ has worked through us as we stand before him on that day. And so we should never downplay the importance of good works in this life, not just to make our life easier, not just because they're right to do, but also because we anticipate a day when we will be in the presence of the perfect one and we want to be made as much like him as we can here and now in preparation for that day. So believers will be glorified and presented to Jesus Christ. Number five, the present world will pass away. The present world will pass away. Second Peter 3, verse 10 and 11. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Peter saw some implications about the world Uh, burning up in this way, the heavens passing away with the roar. But this is the way that things are going to be. Something dramatic 
is going to change. There's a very different world coming in the future. In 1 John 2, verses 15 and 17, excuse me, 15 through 17, you may know the admonition. What is it about? It's about loving the world. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. These things where you do what you feel, you go after what you see and what you want, and then pride. All of these inordinate desires, these wrongly placed desires, sinful desires, this is not from God, this is from the world. This is the kind of thing that characterizes this world. But guess what? Verse 17, the world is passing away. And also, it's lusts. But he who does the will of God lives forever. The world will not always be like this. There will not always be people all around you just sinning everywhere. The atmosphere won't always just tempt you to sin. It won't provide you with all of these opportunities to sin. This is not going to be the culture forever. So don't get caught up in it. Don't give in to the trends and the pressure from your peers and from the world around you. The fact that this present world will pass away also has some implications for holding things loosely in the proper way. 1 Corinthians 7, if you'd like to look there for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 29, starting there. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. There are some caveats there, just giving you that in advance. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. What is he saying by this? Um, He isn't saying that these things have no value. He's not saying that you should mismanage or mistreat the people or the stuff that is spoken of in these things. He's not saying that you should feel no emotions. Paul had these other, he had these things. He even spoke of weeping in Philippians 3. He talked about weeping over enemies of the cross of Christ. In Romans 9, he says, I'm weeping over Israel. So, He's not saying not to do these things. He's not saying don't love your wife. He wrote the passages about it in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. What he's saying is just whenever you do whatever you do, just recognize this is not all there is. This world is passing away. The current form, the form of this world is passing away. This particular era in the history of the universe will not always be here. So don't throw all your lot in here as if it will instead live in light of the world to come and so yes we enjoy things that God has given us yes we fulfill our responsibilities we don't use this truth as an excuse to shirk our burdens of responsibilities instead what we need to do is just keep in mind the fact that also and even primarily what's coming is the world to come and that one will not pass away So we need to remember the present world will pass away. Number six, and the last of these foundational truths, the future kingdom will be full of blessings. The future kingdom will be full of blessings. 
Um, in 1 Corinthians 4, if you're already here in chapter 7, you get a little bit of a picture into what happens when we look in the wrong age for our temporal and our physical and other types of similar blessings. You are already filled, verse 8. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us. He's kind of uh, just mocking them and saying, look, your life is easy. You guys, everything seems fine to you. You don't really seem to grasp this whole suffering thing that comes with the gospel. And you're even looking down upon Paul's weakness and so on. He says, uh, you have become kings without us. But look what he says. Indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. See, Paul understood that it is the destiny of believers to reign in this world. That's why he says in chapter 6, verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse 3, Do you not know we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? It's not that there isn't a prominent blessing coming in the sense that people sometimes seek it. It's just that it's not in this life. God does promise dramatically changed circumstances for his people when the kingdom of God comes. But when we try to get it before Jesus returns, then we're going to run into all kinds of trouble. First of all, because it's not sustainable, but also because it causes us to seek after gain instead of godliness and to misuse the things God has given us and to, miss, uh, to be unwilling to suffer for the sake of Christ in a world that now... Uh, God allows people to do evil things toward his people for the present time. So the problem is not wanting the removal of pain. It's not wanting suffering to go away. It's not, the, the problem is not wanting to be well off enough to where you're not worried about where your next meal is coming from. None of those things are problems. The problem is the expectation that we're going to get that and solve those problems here and now. We should want certain things to go away they're part of the curse they're part of the fallen world we shouldn't delight in them in and of themselves as if they're intrinsically better it's just the reality of the world that we live in now and that will not fundamentally change until the promised time in this world we'll have tribulation but be of good cheer jesus says i have overcome the world well having these foundational things in view i want to consider a few ways where the future shapes our present ministry. Some of these will follow very directly from what we've already talked about, and then some others will need to look at a couple of key passages. How does the future shape our present ministry? First of all, the urgency with which we preach Christ. The urgency with which we preach Christ. It doesn't matter how good someone's life is here and now. They still need the gospel that doesn't solve their universal problem, our, you know, everybody's universal problem of sin and guilt and death. We're guilty before God. We're going to die. We can't overcome that. So it doesn't matter how fulfilled you are because the world is going to change. This world is passing away. All believers will be judged. So what are you going to do to fix that problem when you stand before God? There's only one answer, and it's the gospel. So we preach the gospel to people because they need their sins forgiven and it offers as a reward for trusting Christ, not only forgiveness of sins, but also, as John 3.16 says, everlasting life. So we preach Christ with urgency because we know that the future is coming and this world will not always linger. 
And people will not be able forever to stand and to be okay in their sins. The second thing is not just the urgency with which we preach Christ, but the hope that we promise in the gospel. The specific hope that we promise. What are we offering to people? Now, it is true that many of the elements that the gospel uh, rewards us, us with do come to us here and now in the sense of fellowship, in the sense of a cleansed conscience, um, in being able to fight against sin and actually overcome it in a meaningful way. So being a Christian does come with things where it does change your life in, in many meaningful ways here and now. But often, either subtly or explicitly, people begin to preach and to hear a gospel that becomes basically about this life. And it is about how you can make sure you don't miss your purpose and how you can make sure that your life is good and your relationships are fixed and your marriage is good and your relationship with your kids is good and you have a nice boss and a nice job and you're not tired and you're not sick. And there are all kinds of extreme forms of this to saying Jesus will make you completely wealthy if you just claim it all the way down to the more subtle things of I'm not going to be as unhappy if I'm a Christian and if I have these bad feelings or if I have this sadness or if somebody doesn't like me, then that's not really what I was expecting. When you read John chapter 6, Jesus fed thousands of people and they came and they said, hey, let's make you the king. And he said, no. And then he started deliberately driving them away with the things that he said. Why? Because they weren't after him for what he wanted them to be after him for. They wanted him to be a king who would fix the problems that they determined needed fixing, namely food. This guy can feed us all the time. He had come into the world, he told Pilate, to be a king. Why did he turn them down? Well, because the message that he came to give was not one of how to make their life better here and now. It was that they needed to believe in him for eternal life. So we have a warning against fixing our hope here. Philippians 3, it is the people who set their minds on earthly things who are enemies of the cross. It is those in 1 Timothy 6 who love money and see godliness as the means of gain that misunderstand the gospel. Becoming a Christian is not about getting stuff or making your life better. It is about godliness and true religion before God and then any reward that he brings in the future. So the hope we promise in the gospel must be one concerning the future. It must be about the forgiveness of our sins. It must be in light of the coming judgment, not just to fix problems here and now. Thirdly, we minister with an acceptability of suffering for the gospel. The coming promises about the future tell us about the acceptability of suffering for the gospel. And Paul details this at length in 2 Corinthians. Um, but in particular, just notice a couple of things from chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, um, he says in verse 8, We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. What is he saying by that? 
He's saying we are suffering. We are having the same kind of persecution and hardship that Jesus experienced when he was on earth and people came after him. Again, Paul understands he's not being literally crucified, but you understand the point. He is suffering on behalf of Christ. And he says we are being given over to death and the goal of this and even the effect of our speaking the gospel despite the suffering is that life is at work in you who believe the gospel. That ministry brings about gospel hope and faith and conversions and salvation often through the suffering and hardship that takes place on or by the person who is bringing that word. So what Paul says is we're willing to do this. It's worth it. It's worth it. And we're willing to suffer because we know that it brings about this fruit. And even going on, verses 13 and 14 of 2 Corinthians 4, he says, But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Notice there in verse 14, what he's saying is he is going to raise you and present you to Jesus and he is going to raise us from the dead so that even if we die preaching the gospel, then we're still going to be okay because he's going to bring us all together. And that was what Paul had in front of his mind all the time. This day when all believers who have been saved and sanctified are with Jesus Christ. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? But what do we get excited about? It is the thought of being together in that day when Jesus comes and we are all now in his presence, free from sin, safe and secure forever. This is what he couldn't get his mind off of. And so it made him willing to suffer for the gospel. And so it ought also for us. We ought to be willing to go through hardship and things we don't want to do. And things that we don't like to hear said to us. And things that we don't like done to us. If that means that we can advance the cause of Christ. The acceptability of suffering for the gospel is really only viable in light of the trade-off for the future. Number four, the timeline of our encouragement the timeline of our encouragement toward others. Now, this is important because a lot of times we understand we need to encourage people in their faith, don't we? We need to encourage people when things are hard, when they're having trials, um, when, when people are against them. Things aren't going so well at work. They're suffering through some sickness or illness. And a lot of times uh, we can sort of shade over toward, well, it'll probably get better. Or we, you know, maybe we can fix this situation. And certainly we can try to fix the situation and we can pray that the situation would change. And there's nothing wrong with doing that at all. In fact, we, in many cases, we should do just that very thing. Uh, but we ought also to be careful that we don't give the expectation or have the expectation that that's necessarily going to happen in this life. The encouragement that we give to people in their trials should primarily be that one day when all these future things happen, that's when they'll be gone for certain. So James 5, 7, be patient, brethren, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. James 1, 12, at the end of that great section on how to endure through trials and tribulations, he says, what are we looking for? He says, blessed is the man who endures under trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life. He's putting it at that time in the future. That's where we look and uh, Romans chapter 8, 
verse 18. Listen to what Paul says about this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not worthy to be compared. The solution to your present sufferings is not the next few months or years. In fact, those might be just as much or more suffering. I certainly hope not. But he said, Paul says, whatever they are, we're not comparing them to anything here. We're comparing them with the glory that's going to be revealed. It won't even compare. It won't even compare. And so we must persevere. Verse 25 of that same chapter, Romans 8. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. We must ourselves do this and we must encourage people to persevere, to endure. That means you do that for a long time, for as long as is necessary. And yet one day, you won't have to do that anymore. One day, Jesus Christ will end the idea that you have to persevere. And all of those troubles and trials will be removed. So we don't tell people God's got a plan, things are going to get better, just have faith, or any of those kind of buzzwords or phrases people use. What we tell people is we have something way better than that. You just have to wait until the Lord returns. Um, number five, the importance we place on earthly possessions. The importance we place on earthly possessions. First Timothy chapter 6, if you would look there. In First Timothy chapter 6, we get a picture in, for most of this chapter about how to think about um, both money and Christianity in relationship to each other. He says, uh, verse 7, we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. So we must be careful to recognize that the place to store up true wealth is not where you will hear it on the commercials. It's not where you will hear it on the wealth building um, experts. Where is the place to store it up? Well, we're told in Matthew 6 to store up your treasure in heaven. Because that's where it's going to direct your heart to anyway. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be. So what are you going to think about? What are you going to love? Well, wherever your treasure is. So as a pragmatic measure, put it in heaven. So you're not tied down to this world. There's nothing wrong with saving. There's nothing wrong with wisdom and planning for the future. There's nothing wrong with saying there may be a period of time where I cannot work or I'd like to free myself up from having to work so much so that I can do other things that honor and please the Lord. Nothing wrong with doing those things. Just be very careful that you don't think that these things are going to last beyond this life. So he says, uh, we need to be careful. We don't think we can take something out of this world. How do we handle Earthly possessions, even riches, look down in verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. What does he say? Don't trust in them. Don't be proud about having them. Don't look down on poor people or people who don't have as much money as you. Understand where these things come from. They come from God. He is the one who richly supplies us. And notice, by the way, he does supply us with them to enjoy them. You can enjoy the things that God has given you in this life. You don't have to say, well, they're not going to last beyond this world, and I don't want to put my hope on them, so I can't enjoy them either. Those things are not mutually exclusive. Placing your hope in the future and enjoying what God has given you now 
is not necessarily impossible. It can be challenging sometimes to know how to navigate that, but it's not impossible. But he does say, verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, not rich in money, but worry about being rich in good works primarily, to be generous and ready to share, ready to share. He doesn't say give all your money away so that you will have literally the same amount of money as everyone else. He doesn't say it's wrong to have it, but you need to be very ready to share. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. The importance we place on earthly possessions will change our readiness to do ministry. Can you think about the ways in which you could use what you have to minister to other people? What a great way to use it in the ways this chapter describes. Number six, the importance we place on earthly institutions. Earthly institutions. In Hebrews chapter 12, we find that those things, verse 25 to 27, tell us that those things which are not shakable will remain. And there are only a few things which will last, namely, it is Christians, it is the church. These are the things that can remain. Hebrews 13, 14 says here, we do not have a lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is to come. And so we don't place this weight on earthly institutions. If you were to build a university, for example, that university will not be the thing which passes into the life to come, the world to come. If you were to build a nation, that nation is not, will not be the thing which as such passes into the world to come. Now, God is going to maintain nations in the future. That's very clear. And yet it is not our transformation of those nations that will bring that about. Ultimately, it is the subjection of those rulers and those nations to Jesus Christ when he returns that's going to make them be all that they're supposed to be. So we need to just be very clear on what institutions God has said will carry into the life to come and how and make sure that we're investing in the things that will make it through. Now again, there are certain responsibilities that we have in this life, which means that we can't just abandon institutions. We're supposed to submit to government and pay taxes and pray for the leaders. We're supposed to love our family and we're supposed to care for our neighbors. And some of those people may not be in the kingdom of God with us, yet we're still supposed to do them. This is part of godliness. And yet we need to be just very knowledgeable and aware of the institutional side of things and not put our hope in something that will not make it into the life to come. We need to be discerning on that front. Three more. Evaluation of and reward for our ministry. Our ministry will be evaluated by God. And so we don't care what other people, in one sense, think about it at all. 1 Corinthians 4 Verse 3, but to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself, for I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm not by this acquitted. The one who examines me is the Lord. We are to care little about other people's evaluation of us. Very small, he says, a tiny thing. We should care about being above reproach. We should care about being godly and we should be 
uh, alarmed if people see us and say you're being hypocritical. We should evaluate ourselves in light of that. We should be aware of some of the cultural faux pas that we don't want to commit. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 that we have regard for what is honorable not only in the sight of God but also in the sight of men. We're aware of customs and cultural things. We're careful there. But when it comes to people evaluating passing judgment on us, we're not looking for our reward from them. We're looking for the reward from God. And what he says is it's going to come on the day when Jesus returns. Wait until the Lord comes, verse 5, and then he's going to. Each man's praise will come to him from God. We serve for God's reward, not the reward in favor of men. Number eight, the eternal value of our Christian labor. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, you know the verse, don't you? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Why is it not in vain? Because people around you notice it? No, it's not in vain because the resurrection and everything is going to be rewarded and all the work that you do in Christian ministry is going to have its fruit and its effect for eternity. So this verse speaks of the eternal value of our Christian labor. Don't get discouraged when all your work isn't noticed or when it doesn't seem to be having the effect that you want or where you end up in a hard place. Don't be discouraged by that. None of your labor is in vain in the Lord. The eternal value of our Christian labor. And then finally, the wise stewardship of our time. The wise stewardship of our time. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Verse 16, making the most of your time because the days are evil. We want to be careful how we use the time that we have. We don't have unlimited amounts of time in a day or even in this life. We want to make the most of it for the sake of the glory of God. And so we minister so we obey, so we do the things which will glorify the Lord because we know that there is coming a time when all these will be evaluated and where the fruit of them will either pass the test or not. So do you think about the future? I hope you do. Not just what's coming tomorrow, but I hope you think about these wonderful promises that God has given. And I hope not only will these shape the way of, that you do ministry, but also your motivation to, to labor hard at it, to serve Christ in light of this coming kingdom and all that he has promised, that he may get the glory from all that we do. Let's pray. God, thank you for these promises. Thank you for how they tell us, instruct us as to what we ought to do and the focus that we, might, that we must have. Help us as we finish just now to walk in wisdom. Help us to know how to spend our time. Help us to know the best way to serve you and help us to be zealous in doing that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.